Podcast. I'm Don DiMuccio, and in today's episode, we take a step back into the 1980s with our special guest, who was the lead guitarist in Joan Jett and the Blackhearts for the better part of 10 years. He later struck out on his own as a songwriter and session player, recording with the likes of Roger Daltrey and touring with Southside Johnny and Ian Hunter. Recently, with decades of sobriety under his belt, he's paying it forward by sharing his story with drug and alcohol support groups around the country. And he's used that same story as songwriting inspiration for his current string of concept albums, or as he calls them, recovery records, including his latest release, Sobering Times. Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductee Ricky Bird joins us in just a little bit. But first, as you know by now, here at the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast, we'd like to spotlight local artists, club owners, musicians, Anyone who makes their livelihood out of their passion for rock and roll. And my co-host today has done so in a couple of different ways. He's been a working musician, a professional DJ for hire. But he came into my world when I was a young rock fan. I entered his record store on Broadway in Pawtucket. And I felt like what most normal kids, quote unquote, at that age must feel like when they go to Disney World. Original, pristine copies of Beatles, The Who, The Stones, Zeppelin Records, all there for the buying. And he taught me along the way how to spot first pressings. And I owe this guy a debt of gratitude for sparking my interest in record collecting. Please welcome our co-host, owner of Luke's Record Exchange, Luke Renchen. Hey, Don. How's it going? Good, man. Thanks for joining well, us. This is a long time. I know, man. I'll be honest now. You remember me? The truth? Yes. Ah! Hey! <laughs> I remember bits and pieces. My memory's just getting a little foggy. Well, I sure as hell remember you, man. And you had the coolest store in Rhode Island. I mean, I'm in Cranston. We had some good stores. We had Lofkin Records, God rest his soul. I don't know if you knew that gentleman. I had the opportunity with Lofkin Closed Shop. Yeah. I actually went in. I made a, a huge purchase. And, I would, you know, he had his store for sale. I was going to purchase it as a second location. Right. But I, there was a lot of duplication there. And I didn't want to open the store in Providence. The rent was too much. Yep. So, so anyway, I made a huge purchase there. And, uh, and also, he offered to work for me because he just wanted to be around the music industry. Sure. But I couldn't... Uh, I didn't feel that I could compensate him properly for what he was worth. So that never came came about. I, mean, I was thinking the other day, we were talking about this yesterday. Why would I go to, all the way to Pawtucket? How did I even know about your store? And I think I remember I used to win contests on Chuck Stevens' radio show, WGNG. And he would you know, give away you know, Kelly Sporting Goods and T-Shirt City. And you were definitely one of his sponsors. So I think that's when I first came to your store all those years ago. You did a lot of radio station promotions. I did a lot of promotions with radio station, HAY, PRO. Going back to Chuck Stevens, uh, I used to bother with him quite a bit. So he used to come into the store. He was a big private collector as well, just like I was. Right. You know, so we had a lot of uh, interesting conversations. And, uh, you know, he used to come in and uh, I used to let him come in and pick what he wanted. Same thing with H.J.Y., uh, uh, Jim Van. I don't know if you're familiar with him. Jim's been on the show as a co-host. Okay. Well, Jim and I are good friends. And matter of fact, when I had the fire there in, uh, 
in the 80s there, you know, when I almost was uh, totally out of it. I remember that. Uh, th they put a benefit together, and uh, Jim Van was uh, instrumental in getting that together. It happened at the living room. Wow, that's great. I remember when that fire happened, and I think I came in soon after you reopened. And it always impressed me, even as a kid, you said, most of these records are from my own collection. And well, that, that really, I said, man, that's a guy who's dedicated to what he does. I didn't open the store, you know, to make sales, you know, because it wasn't about the money. Music was, is, is my life and my passion. It always has been. Like you said, I started playing and uh, I'm a keyboard player and I played in bands. You know, some of the bands were Easy Living, Ash, Freedom, Ocean. And uh, I played for about 25 years. Ocean my, put the hand in the man of the yeah, hand of... You not, were in that? Not that ocean. Oh. No, we, we were a cooler band than that. All right. I would hope so. Uh, you know, at the time, we were doing a lot of originals. And we kind of uh, worked on harmonies quite a bit. But I had a lot of fun. You know, played all the local clubs. January, The Edge, The Library. I'm sure you've, you've, you're a musician as well, aren't yeah, you? Yeah, but I'm 50, so I, I, I don't remember most of oh, those clubs. Oh, okay. Well, those were the big clubs in the days. Uh, yeah, yep. once the music store went on, and actually, when I met my wife, and uh, shortly after that, when we got married, I quit the band so I could uh, work on my marriage. It's a job that never ends. Well, you know, I was married to the band, you know, and right, anytime right. somebody wanted something serious, it was like, you know, it's like, okay, uh, I think we're moving on, you know, and so forth. But uh, at some point in time, I, I, I wanted the roots. I wanted some structure. I wanted some foundation. It, I, I really wanted that family life. And I came from a broken home as well. We all did. Yes. One way or another. Tell people who may not be familiar with the store, tell them exactly what Luke's Records was. I mean, besides just a record store, there was something ethereal about it. And well, it let me give you a little bit of a, a, a recap. Of, of So I guess I started selling eight tracks, albums, and 45s, and eventually including cassettes. I also sold four tracks in Real to Real. You probably may not know what those are. Oh, I sure do. Wish I, I had one do. now. The Real to Reels are very collectible, and so aren't the four tracks, especially of the rock artists. Right. The music that I really specialized in when I first started was classic rock. It was my favorites, and that's the music I grew up with. And then not long after that, after opening up the music store, I realized it wasn't just about me. I started realizing, you know, people came in, they were asking for certain stuff. So, you know, I expanded. And I, when I started, I opened up in 79. Actually, I, uh, I started everything at, at flea markets. I started in 1976. My first flea market was Jack Witchie's. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, and then I, I set up at pretty much most of the flea markets, Rocky Hill, Norton, uh, Rain of Dog Track, you know, and uh, so, so I I built a pretty much a good customer base, did a lot of buying and selling, and then I decided to take the flea market level that I was doing to take it to a store. So I was operating at five days a week, then eventually six, and then eventually seven. Was it yeah, was I, the first store there at, in Broadway? No, my actually my first store was on Narragansett Boulevard okay. up in Providence. I, I was only open for two weeks. You know, I went down, applied for a, a license, and they told me before I even got the license, they said you can open, you'll have no problem. I opened for two weeks. Two weeks later, they denied my uh, my license. They told me wow. if I want to get a lawyer, I could dispute it, and you know, I had to explain what it is because they didn't want a secondhand license. They didn't understand. They thought I was going to degrade the neighborhood. So I, at that point, I decided uh, to move on to Broadway and Pawtucket. And my first store was 400 Broadway. It was a little small shop. I don't think you attended that when you probably came no. to the, to the larger store. So I opened in 79. I remembered opening and I don't, I think I might have been open maybe eight, nine months and things weren't doing so well. You know, and then, uh, John Lennon passed. Yeah. Uh, the next morning, I mean, I had a line out the door. I got all kinds of TV coverage, radio coverage. I picked up five butcher covers. 
Actually, I picked up three from that event. I picked up five after uh, PM Magazine did a, an article about me. They did an article about the barter system. Yeah. And I traded a butcher cover for a car. I thought I'd try something different, you know. <laughs> so, I mean, part of what I did in my store, I bought, sold, and traded. Yeah. So if you had merchandise that you didn't want no longer, your parents had your, your music when you, and you went to college and you moved away and you didn't want it anymore, I picked up a lot of that stuff, you know. And I, I bought everything. I mean, instead of buying by the piece, I bought by the box. Right. So anyway, I started 400 Broadway, then I moved to 393 Broadway. Uh, I moved there in uh, 83. I purchased the building in 86, uh, but we had a fire there in 85. I totally pretty much got wiped out, but luckily there was an insurance check, and I opened up, and uh, uh, we bought the building. I lived right over the store. At first, uh, I think I worked there for about nine, ten years all by myself without any employees. And then after the fire, it, uh, I... Uh, I went to counseling because I became a workaholic. I joined a couple of the programs. Whatever I did, I either did too much of something or not enough. Anyway, the counselor said, you know, you need to enjoy your family. You need to spend more time with your family. And it's time to get some employees. At that particular time, I got employees. I took my first vacation. I never believed in closing the store. I did everything for the store. I, I loved working the store. I didn't care about the money. I've Actually, the first 10, 11 years, I, I worked for as little pay as possible. I was struggling. You know, at home, but I took all the money that I made and invested it back into the business. And you did well, right? You were saying we were talking uh, a little bit yesterday. You did pretty damn I, good. I, I had some incredible years. I made a ton of money. I didn't graduate high school. Uh, my highest grade that I went to was the tenth, and I didn't even complete it. But basically, I, I was very knowledgeable in music. My father uh, was a musician. He went to conservatory for music, so I learned a lot from him. I learned a lot from the environment, and I was a street person. So constantly learning stuff. But I think the biggest training I got was being at the flea markets, just being with people and finding out I'm a people person and I like people. And, you know, it was interesting, you know, speaking to people and learning and expanding my knowledge on music and, you know, people taking me into their homes and showing me their collections. And, you know, at some point in time, I mean, I, I think I was one of the bigger Beatle collectors in the state. Mm-hmm. You know, I I actually, I was so bad that my daughter called the uh, hoarder show and they wanted to do a segment of me. Really? Uh, as, a, as a hoarder, yes. See, now that, and that's why I hate that show because one man's hoarding is another man's collecting. Oh, uh, definitely. I mean, I, I, I watch all those shows, yeah. you know, and so forth. I mean, I, I watch the pawnbrokers and all that stuff, but I mean, it's interesting, you know, it's the same thing. I mean, we still go yard sailing today. Right. You know, my wife, I, and I don't look to, to, I'm not looking for that, you know, that rare find, even though I do find them every now and then. But I mean, I go, it, it takes me out of the house. It's interesting. You never know what you're going to find. You know, I, I love a deal, you know, and so forth. And I always did. Yep. Uh, I've had 29 butcher covers. I don't know if you know what a butcher cover oh, is. I do, but explain to people what it is. Okay. Th- that was uh, the Beatle Yesterday and Today album. It came out in 1966. There was an alternative cover. The first cover that came out there was actually taken off the market. Actually, many of them did not even reach the store. So when they introduced the uh, Yesterday and Today album, it had the babies with the raw meat. If you looked at the uh, the photo of the Beatles, the eyes were all bloodshot. You know, it's it's it, pretty it's, ahead of its time. It was very ahead of its time. So yeah. it ended up uh, it, it went against their image. The industry decided to pull the cover. So and they were supposed to destroy it. But they didn't. You know, they, they had a recall on them. And what they did is they pasted over the new cover and sent it back out because they, already, they had too much money into it. And 
You know, they didn't want to start over from scratch. So there's a lot of people right now that are sitting at home with the Yesterday and Today album and the original covers underneath. So the most I ever sold one for was like $1,300. But I mean, I, I've heard of documented, uh, you know, twenty and $30,000 in Rhode Island and actually higher. So uh, if you have one, it's definitely a nice collector's item. I don't have one today. I sold my, my last one some time ago. I, I, I actually sold off all my collection. I retired. Yeah. Today, uh, I'm 67 years old. I no longer have this, this huge collection because, I mean, I've downsized. I've sold my home. And uh, I've got something more, uh, you know, that meets my needs for today. Going back uh, to the butcher cover for a second. Are you familiar with the Alan Livingston story? He was uh, the president of Capitol Records at the time. Okay. And he had the, the forethought, the wherewithal to grab a box straight from the distributor of sealed butcher covers. I think he had 14 stereo and 10 monos, and he put them in his attic. And he didn't touch them for 10 years. He gave them to his son. And he went to a Beatle Fest, I think in 1974, the first one. And he just went with a handful of them and sold off the sealed copies. He's a first state. You know, there's first state, second state, yes. third state. Third state being peeled, second state being it still has the trunk cover pasted on it. And those were the first anyone had ever seen of sealed copies. And I think the son still has three left, and they're priceless. Just to add to that story, so as I said, I've had 29 butcher covers come through my hands that I bought and sold. And out of the 29 of them, 27 were monos, only two were stereo. Stereo is much rarer, very difficult to come by. Sure. And in 1966, to purchase a stereo album would have cost you a dollar more. Yep. You know, and the stereo in the days weren't true stereo. So there was something just, you know, just coming about and hadn't established itself yet. So a lot of people... You know, went out and purchased monos. Uh, I've never had a sealed butcher cover. So uh, if I did, I mean, the, the correct place to sell it would be online on an auction or somewhere, you know. And uh, Got to be careful with eBay. A lot of scams out there. A lot of well, fake the, stuff. The, the One way of telling this, there's a lot of slick. So what they did is they made the covering. So in the 90s and the 2000s, there was a bunch of uh, the bootlegs. So they made slicks that you could put over it. Right. Now, now one good way of telling about it, so the original cover had a textured finish. So if you ran your finger over it, you could feel the texture on it. Yep. And the uh, the bootlegs or the copies, were they, they were glossy. Right. You know, and so forth. So we are music nerds. We could do 40 minutes just on the butcher cover. I sure could. And that's and I want to get to that because the local record store guy was more than just a retailer. You know, you had regulars in the store that would come in and it was so more. Yeah. My story, I, I catered to the collector. The fan of music, the bargain hunter. Have you ever had any celebrities in the store? Ah, uh, yes. Well, we had the Ramones there. Come on. So the Ramones, I guess, just finished a concert up in Providence, and they came by the store. You know, there was a van that stopped in front. Uh, a gentleman in a suit stopped at my front door, and the rest of the band just dispersed and were shopping around. So yeah. I was like, you know, something was like, I didn't recognize him. Uh, I mean, it looked familiar, but uh, and I knew who the Ramones were, but uh, you know, I'd expect to see them in my store. Right. Yeah, you know, because I was in the next city over from Providence, I didn't get as many uh, artists come in there. But anyway, uh, I asked a gentleman at the door with the suit on. I says, uh, "You know, who is this?" He says, "That's the Ramones. They just finished performing." So it's like, "Oh, okay, that was cool." And then I noticed Joey Ramone, which is pretty tall, the big boy. He was over there, and I was carrying some live concert tapes. You know. Uh, and uh, he was over there at that area. 
So I was kind of like a, a little worried about it because it was one of those gray area things. Known as yeah. bootlegs. Bootlegs, yes. Yeah, your average, your, actually, your chain stores were not carrying them. That's when you went to the mom and pop. Yep. Went to the record shows to purchase those things. And the only reason I didn't do that for any other reason, but the fans wanted them, you know, so I tried to make them available. So anyway, Joey Ramone was over there. I remember him. He spent $50, you know, uh, somewhere in the vicinity around $50. And that's after I gave him a substantial deal because I was nervous. He was looking at his tapes. So I, I had some Ramones tapes there as well as many others, you know, and uh, it turned out that the guy's really cool. The guy liked a lot of the same music. He, he liked the Who you know, he liked Jimi Hendrix. He he, uh, he was looking at his stuff. He didn't get any of his stuff. I would have given him his stuff for free, you know, but uh, he bought a lot of classic rock stuff. The rest of the band, I don't remember what any of them did, just Joey because he was in that one area and, and I never forgot it. And we also had Eminem come in. He did an in-store promo. So he was there three days before the drop of his first album. Yeah. Uh, I had the DJ at a wedding, so I missed him. So my son and my wife was there. And uh, the weird thing was is, you know what? Uh, I only got a notice about an hour before we came in that it was coming. We called a few people up and not a lot of people knew who Eminem was. And then the following week, I mean, we got all these people like, where is he? Where is he? Or he came and he went, you know? Yeah, right. And then finally, I got to know who he was and, you know, he turned to be pretty big. Sure. Uh, we had a couple members of the motels in there. Sometimes I wasn't there. Like I was out DJing. So uh, I had to start during the day. Uh, I did flea markets on weekends. I, I DJed at uh, weddings and parties at nights. So I was a pretty much workaholic, you know. I had two wives, my wife, Christine, and Luke's Record Exchange. You know, so any successful business, you're going to be married to it, you know, in order for it to work. You're going to give it 100%. Oh, God, yeah. It's, it's not a nine-to-five thing. Listen, I want to take care of a little business before we go on. The It's Only Rock and Roll podcast is currently running promotions for some amazing rock documentaries. In fact, streaming now on Redbox On Demand from Paramount Pictures, experience the incredible rise of legendary blues artist Joe Bonamassa in Guitar Man, featuring behind-the-scenes interviews and live concert footage with some of the biggest names in music. And you can stream Guitar Man instantly on your smart TV or favorite device with the Redbox app today. And in fact, we're giving away a download code to see Joe Bonamassa's Guitar Man to five lucky listeners. Just send us a message, whether on Facebook, Instagram, or you can email us at it's only rock and roll podcast at gmail.com and just say, hey, Don, I want to see this thing. And we'll choose five listeners at random and we'll send you out that code. And this is courtesy of Redbox and the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast. Yeah, there's been a lot of great rock documentaries recently. And I remember a couple of years back, there was one about Joan Jett. I think it was called Bad Reputation. Of course, I missed it because that's what I do. You know, I put it on my to-do list and then it languishes for a decade. But I've had the opportunity to speak with the original guitarist for Joan Jett and the Blackhearts, Ricky Bird. And for the three people listening out there who haven't heard the Blackhearts, buckle up, kids. This ain't the Jonas Brothers.
Starting in 1981 and continuing for the better part of a decade, today's guest was a member of Joan Jett and the Blackhearts, playing guitar on some of the most memorable songs of the 80s rock era, including I Hate Myself for Loving You, their top 10 1982 cover of Crimson and Clover, and the song Rolling Stone Magazine placed in the 500 greatest of all time, I Love Rock and Roll. He later struck out on his own as a successful songwriter and session musician, working for the likes of Roger Daltrey, and today he's dedicated much of his solo career to the omnipresent topic of addiction and recovery through deeds and songwriting, including his latest CD release, Sobering Times. Please welcome to the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast, member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, Ricky Bird. How you doing, Donald? How are you doing, sir? I'm doing Okay. You know, it's, uh, what day is today? What is it, Wednesday? <laughs> There's no time frame anymore. No, I lose track. I, I just heard the rumor that Christmas is coming up. I haven't heard that one yet. The tree is up, so that was what tipped me off. Well, let's start at the beginning here, because I know you grew up in the Bronx, and I've heard you say a couple yeah. times it was a Neil Simon existence. For those out there who aren't old guys like me and you, explain what that means a little bit. Oh, my God. Well, I mean, Neil Simon, you know, f- famous writer and yep. the writer of The Odd Couple and, and all the, uh, you know, a bunch of great movies. I don't know. How do I explain that? It was just sort of like in those, you have to see the movies to understand what I'm talking about. Well, tell me about your childhood. Well, the Bronx was fabulous. You know, I loved growing up in the Bronx. I went to uh, PS73. Like back in those days, back in those days oh my god uh it it was not uncommon for a lot of family members to live in like we lived in an apartment building right right so you know like your aunt lived down the hall you know your grandmother was on another floor (laughs) we kind of all lived like you know in in the same same building really or same area my grandmother lived a block away my great-grandmother actually and then when we moved to Queens, like, you know, four families all moved together to Queens. It was just common back then. Uh, now everybody's spread out all over the place. But our kitchen window, I remember uh, sitting there and you could see Yankee Stadium from our window. So obviously I'm a Yankee fan from, from the get-go. What's your earliest memory of rock and roll? Were you born in 56? Yeah. So that puts so, you right in the sweet spot. Well, yeah. But I mean, here's, here's the deal. So my parents were divorced, right? So when we moved in with my grandparents which was in the same building. <laughs> my grandmother used to play a lot of, like my grandfather would work. My grandmother worked too, but when she was home, she would play a lot of Sinatra and, you know, you, what you would think, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Tommy Dorsey, like that kind of stuff. And I remember I could picture her like feather dusting the furniture, listening to, you know, humming to something from the Tommy Dorsey days. And uh, one of the things that many families did back then in the 60s, was we'd gather together on Sunday nights and we would watch the Ed Sullivan show. Mm-hmm. And Ed Sullivan, for those people, you know, like you mentioned, that are not old enough to know who the hell that is, he was a newspaper reporter. Um, he got this TV show. So it was a variety show. And he was an older guy, you know, knowing what my age is now, looking back, I don't know how, the, how old he was. Right, you was can't tell. About, yeah, was he 30? Was he 40? Was he, I don't know. But for us little kids, I mean, he seemed like an old guy. And it was a variety show. So he would have like a comedian. Uh, he would have a cast of a Broadway show. He would have like junglers from all over the world. And he would have rock bands. So Elvis did one of his most famous shot from the waist up performances from there. And um, the year you were co- born, actually. Right, exactly. Yeah. The Stones and the Beatles were both on around 64, 65, along with other people. And I remember being nine years old and seeing... Uh, well, first of all, the music was on because I was always into music. So I always had like a transistor radio and like a, like a baseball bat, like a Yankees bat day bat. You know, that was my two things back then. Yeah. 
So I was always listening to AM radio, which was amazing in New York, because everything was on one station, as opposed to now, like if you listen to XM radio, there's a station for every form of music, right? Except for Little Steven's Underground Garage, which will play Sinatra, then they'll play The Kinks, then they'll, you know what I mean? Then they'll play Howlin' Wolf. Which was the way it used to be. Exactly. It was all on AM radio, which actually gave me my wide variety of influences because it was all on one station. But getting by Ted Sullivan, so, you know, we see this band and tying everything together emotionally. You know, I was always, I was shy kid back then, uh, very internal, quiet, thinking a lot. I love to read. I love to draw. I was always like doodling pictures of people and stuff. So I guess the point I'm trying to make is I, I felt a little different. A little left of center, maybe. Mm -hmm. And when I saw the Stones on TV, I kind of just went, whoa. They, they kind of looked like I felt, like which was different. And the girls were screaming. And even at nine years old, I thought that was a plus. Sure. And because I was shy, it was definitely a plus. Yeah. And I think the final stamp of approval for me was I noticed between the Ed Sullivan Show and the famous Stones appearance on the Hollywood Palace with Dean Martin, where he kind of rolled his eyes. Yes. It was like the changing of the guard, right? For right. them. I mean, imagine what it was like for Dean Martin and Sinatra, where all of a sudden they were the kings, and now all of a sudden this new music's coming out. Right. Which is similar to how we, we felt when, like, all of a sudden rap music was sort of dominating the radio stations. You know, when you're in a rock and roll band, it was like a new music is here. So what I'm saying is between the rolling of the eyes and Ed Sullivan looking kind of, you know, I mean, he was trying to get ratings, so I'm sure he, he asked for the Stones because they had hit records. But he looked sort of unapproving. Right. You know what I mean? And to me, that seemed attractive because I guess if you can't wear the white hat, you wear the black hat, right? It's it. So I actually asked my mom for a guitar pretty soon after that. And she worked at a handbag company, right? So her boss gave her a guitar. It must have been for my birthday. He gave her a guitar that she brought home, my, my first acoustic. And that guitar is in the rock hall now. That's amazing. Yeah, it's pretty cool. What was it? Oh, it was nothing. It was it was no name. Yeah. You know. yeah, didn't matter. No, no. I kept it all these years, and and I feel like everybody does something well. It's just distractions take us away from these things, or yeah. we never find it. What we do well, there's a million reasons. But I could hear a song on the radio. Like, I could hear There's a Kind of Hush by Herman's Hermits right mm -hmm. back then. And I could go on the guitar and I can go, down, 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 down. Like, I didn't know one chord, but I could pick out the notes. I'm not saying I did it well, but I, but it seemed like, well, I, I, I think I could do this. So I just started playing guitar and learning myself, really. I must have had a book at some point. <laughs> um, when we moved to Queens, New York, I did take like two lessons at this place on Main Street in Flushing. I remember there was a music store there. Those lessons didn't last long. <laughs> right. But to answer to your question, the long way around, that's the, the, those first initial appearances on American TV are what made me want to do this. And also, if you remember, there were like local, um, I don't know where you're from. I mean, you, you Rhode know, Island. New England. Uh, yeah, I know. You got the accent. We had local, if you remember, lo or you probably don't remember, maybe they probably had them, local dance shows of on course. TV. You know, we had guys like Lloyd Thaxton or, or even American Bandstand, right? Which was which was Philadelphia at first, right? Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And, and there were always cool bands on. And I was immediately, you know, I was just attracted to all of that stuff. I, I could tell you right now that I was completely in love with British rock and roll, right? Yep. You know, I mean, so we're talking about Herman's Hermits, uh, the Kinks. 
the stones, uh, later on the faces, humble pie, oh, the yeah. small faces, you know, this and that. I just talked to Kenny Jones last week. Oh, isn't that cool? He's awesome, yeah. Those guys, you know, it's all t- tied together, like we're talking about AM radio. All right, so they may have played Sam Cooke, A Change Is Gonna Come, or, um, you know, uh, Twisting the Night Away. He was a crossover artist, right? But I didn't learn about like Muddy Waters and Howlin' Wolf and Slim Harpo until I read magazine articles. And, and those British artists would tell me what was cool. So that's what made me go back and listen to those guys. The greatest thing I think they all did, that they reintroduced America to its own music. No doubt, no doubt. Uh, and, and you would occasionally see, like you'd see maybe Wilson Pickett on the Ed Sullivan Show, or um, you would definitely see Lonely Teardrops. Um, Jackie Wilson. Jackie Wilson. So, you know, we, we, we were privileged to see some of those people on the Ed Sullivan Show. And they were like crossover artists. Were you a big record buyer? Did you buy singles a lot? That's an interesting question. I can't remember which came first. I mean, there's, there's photos of me with a little kid with a, a thing with singles on it. Yeah. I mean, I remember having certain singles. Like, I remember the Honky Tonk Woman single with the, with the actual picture. And I remember having There's a Kind of Hush, No Milk Today. I don't know why I keep going back to that song. You love Peter Noon, don't you? Come on. I do like it. Peter Noon. And actually, I ran into him on Fifth Avenue. And he was like really? the nice, nicest guy. But the first like vinyl album, uh, two albums in one day, I got, um, and I, I don't know, maybe my mom brought them home for me. I can't remember. It was Jimi Hendrix, Are You Experienced, and The Monkees. Isn't that funny? Monkees made some good music. Really good they, music. No, no, no. They made some great music, but it's so completely on uh, opposite sides. True. But I guess so am I. Listening to your album, which we're going to talk about later a little bit, and we're going to play a couple tracks, too. Oh, I can cool. tell you're a product of everything you've heard. It's That's, all in there. You know? I mean, you should say that because people ask me, like, what, how do you describe your sound? And I said, dude, I'm a product of everything I listen to from, like, the age of, like, you know, 10 to maybe 20-something. Yep. Early 20, maybe almost 20. All of that music, I, I don't try to reinvent the, the wheel. I'm, I'm never going to be, like, um, Bob Dylan or something like that. Which, I mean, Bob Dylan was a Woody Guthrie, right? And then he, right. Because of his voice, it turned into Bob Dylan. But everything that you hear me do on, on, on records, and even guitar playing, like I'm a combination of those guys, you know, yep. uh, like Clapton, Jeff Beck, Page, um, you know. Uh, I hear a bit of George Harrison in there, too. Yeah, especially on this new record. I actually went for that. I played a couple of things on 12 string, which was cool. Yeah, but I'm, I'm like completely where my influence is on my sleeve, and I don't really give a rat's ass. <laughs> As well, you shouldn't. Well, let me ask you about your early band experiences. My first garage band, so to speak, which is where the name comes from, right? Yeah. Uh, maybe I'm so, uh, by the time I was 14 and living in Queens, you know, I, I met like minded people in school, right? They're, like in junior high school and in high school. Right. Um, that were musicians. And it wasn't like it is now, like everybody plays something, but there, there were, you know, few and far between at that point. Oh, Steve plays drums. Oh, this one plays this. Oh, this one, you know. Yeah. Um, and, it, and it's true. You, you laugh when you read certain people like Bill Wyman, you know, well, I had the bass amp, so that's why they let me join or something. Right, like that. right, right. Well, this, this, this guy's father had a van. Oh, well, you play drums, right? <laughs> um, but, but those were the bands that was the beginning for me. Sure. So I, we would play in my friend's basement, right? But that's it. And then, you know, you get a little better and we would start to get, I don't know if that band or maybe the next band, we would start to play local high school dances. Um, we would play local dances in Queens. Maybe you play a park. Maybe they would have stages set up in parks. I'm a musician for 30 years. I played many, many parks. Many parks, yeah. So that was that band. And, and I could tell you, I could, I could picture, like, we would play these gigs. And, you know, back then, the older cats, right? So we were the new groups, right? And the older cats, so you'd have like in the midnight hour in your set, of course. Yeah. Uh, maybe Twist and Shout. You had to do Twist and Shout. The standards. <laughs> standards, standards. They're rock and roll standards, right? 
But then at one of these park gigs in Queens, I met my friend Phil, right? Phil Bader. He lives in Florida and we're still friends. Um, and we put together a band and we called it Panda. And, and oh, we played Flushing High School. So I went to Flushing High School and we did a concert. So that was the biggest, you know, place we ever played. It was like the, in the auditorium and it was packed, right? Um, and we opened up with Four Day Creep by Humble Pie and we did like Savoy Brown and Faces and Stones. So we were heavily influenced by that music. Then we started playing, we started getting gigs in Manhattan. You know, we started to get write-ups and they would say like 16-year-old guitar player Ricky Bird, right? But we would play like Max's Kansas City. We would play um, the Mercer Art Center, which was actually in a, a show with, I think Scorsese did, called Vinyl. Oh, yeah. It wasn't a very good show. I, but I watched one season. Well, first yeah. of all, the Mercer Art Center they had didn't look anything like the Mercer Art Center I played. Okay. But, yeah. but, but that's where I saw like the dolls, the New York dolls, because oh, yeah. they were older than us, right? And, and we were like these kids from Queens. And, and that was like the beginning. You know, that was the beginning. I was already one of my friends, the drummer Al, who just wrote something on Facebook. He said that he knew that I was going to be a musician forever because I said to him back then, I don't know how to do anything else. I mean, this is, I'm a, this is what I'm going to be. I'm going right. to be a musician. Live or die, I'm going to be a musician. And then you were supporting Grand Park from the rumor. I got to admit, he's a gap in my musical education. I never really. Oh, really? Yeah. I'm well, I mean. Say. I didn't know who he was either until we did the tour, and then I fell in love with him, and I watched him every night. So that was the Susan. That was the band Susan. This was the ba the band from Boston. Moved to New York. We I joined the band. We write an album's worth of stuff. There were three lead singers. Carol, um, my girlfriend, my my wife now. She knew Tommy Mottola, who you know was the president of Sony, or but back then he was managing Hall and Oates. So um, we get we get signed to RCA. Uh, we do a record called Fallen in Love Again. And what I was saying before is I still have people that go, man, I love that record. It was kind of raspberries, you know, had this three, three lead singers, this and that. And we, we go on our first tour and it's with opening for Graham Parker and the rumor on his squeezing out the sparks tour, which is an amazing record. And, you know, British band, pub band, right? They started yeah. as a pub band and Brins, Brinsley Schwartz was the guitar player. And I just like fell in love with his playing and he's because he, he was always playing like the melody. He wasn't like riffing. Right, right. He had these really great melodic solos. And that was the first tour we did. We, that band, when it, the, the tour ended back in New York at the Academy of Music. So the Academy of Music was this great old theater on 14th Street. They'd have like two shows a night, 8 and 11. And it was like, yeah, I don't know, $2, 250 to get in. And, and it was three bands. So it was like Jay Giles, Humble Pie and Mountain. How's that? Wow. That kind of stuff. And that's where I went to my, really where I went to most of my concerts. Yep. Um, I mean, I saw the Who at Forest Hills Tennis Stadium stuff, but the, the Academy of Music was the main place. And the tour ended there and, and our guitar player, Tommy, left the band. We tried to put together versions of it, didn't quite, you know, we, we kind of couldn't get traction. So we, we broke up. Uh, we probably did some gigs in different versions. And um, then the next thing I did, like I said, Tommy Matola managed Hall & Oates. And in Hall & Oates was G.E. Smith, the guitar player, who's a pal of mine, right? Yep. And he left Hall & Oates, and he had a record out. And he said to me, hey, I'm doing a tour. Would you like to be the second guitar player? I said, absolutely. And I went on tour with him, and we opened up for Squeeze. Was Jules Holland with them? That's a great question. I'm going to have to I'm gonna ask G.E. when I talk to him. Yeah. Um, but we toured across the country, too, played all the great places. And then I came back, and then I kind of like was floating around trying to figure out what to do next. Uh, Carol worked at a um, management company called Lieber Krebs, famous management company. They managed Aerosmith and Ted Nugent and all this Def, Def Leppard. Yeah. And they also managed Humble Pie, and she knew how big a fan I was of Humble Pie, and she introduced me to Steve Marriott, and then I, we became friends. Wow. And we were hanging out. 
And he was kind of like, it was like the last version of Humble Pie. And, and you know, he was going to do something else. And he was kind of, hey, man, you should play with me, you know, and that kind of stuff. Um, and then um, Carol said to me, there's this, uh, there was this girl named Joan Jett, and she's looking for guitar player. Are you interested? And I said, yeah, I know she is. Um, I think I saw the Runaways at CBGB's, mm-hmm. if, I, if I remember correctly. Yeah. And um, I went down, I played with Joan, and we got along great. I joined the band. We did the I Love Rock and Roll record, hit the road, and there you go. should note also it was originally done by the arrows and right. i know a friend of yours who passed away right. this year alan merrill yeah one of the first people i well the first person i heard of that i knew that died from covid yeah i know it was early it's like march and he wrote a classic did you have much interaction with him like at the time uh, no no I, I didn't even meet him until way later help me with the chronology a bit because i know she had a self-titled album in 1980 which i guess was re- they reissued it right bad reputation but you're not on that one Correct? No, I didn't even know her yet. Okay. So you come in. We're talking about 1981, I joined the band. Right. The album was already started, I understand. Well, Eric Amble was the guitar player, and Eric Amble left the band. That's when I went to play with her. So they had some tracks they already did. Like, if you listen to the I Love Rock and Roll record, Crimson and Clover, that's Eric's uh, guitar solo. And then I, pl- I played rhythm around it with yep. Joan. You know, we did a lot of the record over. 
I know Eric played on Little Drummer Boy, and I can't. I don't think I played on that. I'm not. I'm, I can't remember. I played on the whole record. It's yeah, just yeah. that there's certain things that they left at Eric. Um, that's Salt Crimson and Little Drummer Boy, and I think that might be it. And you did some singing in background. Oh yeah, of course. Everything. Yeah, yeah. And I saw that video. I love that video. That I was a place called for Privates. Just going to ask you that. What's the club? Yeah, it was a club called Privates. Uh, Libra Krebs owned it, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, it was on, hmm, was it on Lexington Avenue? I can't remember now. But um, it had a big room. So, you know, I've, I played there with a couple of bands. Big room, you know, nice big room. Yeah. And then it had a bar. And, and that was in the bar. We filmed that in the bar. Can you give me some memories of the actual recording of the album? Any, uh... Jesus, not a one. Seriously. Well, I mean, it was, it was 1981, bro. I know. I mean, I remember it was great. We had fun. I, you know, everybody got along great. Um, we did it out in Long Island at Kingdom Sound, right? Yep. I think we did the whole thing there. Again, you know, like, uh, I can't remember. It's so, it's so long ago. But uh, they would remember better than I would. And it was really cool. I remember meeting Morris Levy, the famous. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he came to the studio one day. It was just a great experience, you know? Our two guitars sounded great together. That, that sounds great. I mean, your guitar work on that record is fantastic. What I assume is your guitar work, because you said there's some bits you did rhythm, some things you over. Well, over no, it's only like on two. So it was only on like Crimson and Clover. You know, where where his his chunky chunky lead that was his. Yeah. And then I probably overdubbed, you know, a rhythm part. Uh.
What was the worst gig that you can remember doing with the Black Hots? Oh, shit. I remember we played in Spain opening for the Scorpions. And something went down. There was something that went down and it spread around the, the audience. I don't know. There was like an opening act. You know, it was the opening act, which was a local band, us and then the Scorpions. And we were on tour with them. Mm. And something happened where the opening band, somebody stole it, something from them or something. And somehow we got blamed for it, and obviously we had nothing to do with it. Mm. I remember standing like behind the curtain with Joan, and the crowd was like screaming. They hated us for no apparent reason. Yeah. And I remember me and Joan were like, "I'm not going out there." This is this isn't in a, like a like a Madison Square Garden kind of setting. Yeah. But in, in Germany or somewhere, I think it, no, maybe it was Spain. And I remember going out there, and they were throwing stuff at us. So that was a pretty bad gig. Wow. I would say I remember getting hit with a battery. <laughs> You know, like right above the eye. <laughs> oh, I don't like mean to laugh, buddy, but that's... Like somebody's tossed a nine volt at me or something. Yeah, it's going to leave a mark the next day, huh? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that's the that's the one that pops out in my head. I'm sure there were other weird gigs. I mean, they were all great, man. You know, we opened for everybody. We played all around the world a few times. We played these giant places. And then we enjoyed playing these small places on our days. You know, if we were on a tour opening for the police, we would play the college or we played like a club or just, you know, in, yeah. in between. So it was all amazing stuff. There must be a worse gig. Now you got me thinking, but that's the one that stands out in my mind. That's pretty bad. Especially being in a foreign country. You know, that's going to add a, another layer of stress to it. Oh, well, let, let me just add. There was one in, in, in 83 when my, I collapsed, my lung collapsed on stage in Opelika, Alabama. That was interesting. What happened there? Oh, it was just from bad living. Right. You know, and then and, and then I spent two weeks in the hospital down there. They actually did gigs without me for a, a couple of weeks. Yeah, um, it was it was serious though. It was a, almost ending. It was wow. almost my demise. days we're going to be coming up on the 40th anniversary of john lennon being assassinated in new york city on december 8th being a new yorker can you share some of the memories of that terrible night were you in town that night 
Yeah. We were in our apartment and we were about to go out. Uh, we were getting dressed or something. We were sitting there and it came on the radio. And then it was like, what? And I remember, I think, I don't know if we went up to the Dakota that night. Well, we, we definitely went up there the next day because I remember standing in front of it. Yeah, man, it was completely senseless and horrendous. And it still is. I remember it myself. Back yeah, in my life. Let's not forget that George Harrison got stabbed, too. You know, I don't know. There's a lot of weird people out there. When you finally decided to call it a day with the Blackhawks, was it burnout? Was it something personal? Was it acrimonious? Nah, it was nothing personal. It was just a matter of, you know, I was in the band 10 years. I wanted to try, you know, do some other stuff. I was definitely burnt out. Um, I was already sober from 1987, and I left in 91. It made me think clearer. I just wanted to try some other stuff. That's, you know, it's a good time to be with a band 10 years. Got it. <laughs> Um, and I got a publishing deal. I wanted to stay home and write. I wanted to put together my own band. That took forever and, it, you know, uh, a couple of unsuccessful tries. I mean, the main problem was this, the songwriting part was great. I had a publishing deal so I could stay home and write. Um, I, I couldn't figure out who, who I was at that point, you know. Um, I was the guitar player from the Black Hearts. I was in Susan. Well, what do I sound like? What do I sound like? And uh, the first couple of starts were, um, you know, sort of muddling through a kind of tag job stone sound, you know? Yeah. Um, and that was fine, man. You gotta, you, there's no failure. You're only not doing anything. Right. And then I did other stuff. Like I went out and I played with Satsai Johnny for a while. I did all kinds of cool stuff. I went out with, Ro immediately after leaving the Blackhearts, I did an album with Roger Daltrey. And a, oh, yeah, and Rocks a, like, in the Head, right? 1992. Yeah. You know, we got to record at Abbey Road, so that was fantastic. And um, and then I uh, went out with Ian Hunter and I did a tour, and that was fabulous. Um, and, and with da Daltrey, we did like a radio tour around the United States, which was amazing because I got to play some Who songs. And then there was that period. Then after that, I did went through that period of trying to figure out uh, what I sounded like. And, and really, you know, and doing little bits in here, getting songs covered, this and that. And then 2013, I did the Lifer record. And that was where I came to terms of who I was. And who I was was what we started with, a product of everything I listened to. So I didn't, I wasn't trying to do it. I wasn't trying to be anything. I just played rock and roll the way I know how to play it. And it came out pretty cool. And you have a great new album, out, which I want to talk about. Substance abuse and rock and roll, it's almost a cliche. And I mean, I've done my time with it. Like you said in your song, I said goodbye to my old friends. I know exactly what you're talking about. You certainly have talked quite openly about your time via your releases. You call them recovery albums. Tell me the impetus for that. So, like so I, I've been in recovery for 33 years now. And why? Well, basically, I did too much too often. How's that? There's my mission statement. And, you know, never really thought about doing recovery music, but I started to do, I was starting to be asked to do these kind of benefits for treatment facilities yep. to raise money. A couple of them were great. I did a couple in Boston with my friend Woody Giesman, who runs a treatment facility up there called Right Turn. And it was an all-star band. And actually, Simon Kirk called me and said, I'm doing this benefit for Woody. Do you want to be part of it? And uh, Simon Kirk from Bad Company. Of course. Well, not, not everybody knows that. And the firm. Yeah, and free. <laughs> uh, let's not forget free. <laughs> oh, exactly. You know, and actually, he played with me. I had a little uh, band. Yeah, I forgot to talk about that. I had a little uh, band with me on acoustic, Simon on drums, and Chasm Sultan on bass, and that was fun. He was with uh, Meatloaf, right? Yeah, and yeah. he played with me with the Blackhearts in the later generation of the Blackhearts. Oh. So I started getting to being asked to do these gigs, and every time we finished, somebody would come over to me uh, in the, from the crowd and would say, it's so cool that you're in recovery because, you know, I'm in recovery or, or I... You know, unfortunately, I lost somebody or this. And, so that's sort of like a light bulb went over my head. I was like, wow, I kind of like this. And then, you know, skip a lot of time. I did a bunch of those. I wrote a song called Broken is a Place, which is the final song on my last record, Clean Getaway, came out in 2017. 
And I, and I recorded a version of it and I put it online and I started getting responses from around the world of people saying, wow, man, you told my story. So that was like, oh, that's kind of cool. So um, I, I wrote a second one. I wrote a third one, you know. And, and then when I had about a half a dozen songs, I reached out to a treatment facility who I met through doing these gigs. Um, and I said, how about if I came to your place with my guitar and did like a recovery music group? I didn't even know what I was talking about, but they said, um, that'd be great. And I started doing those, and the reaction I got from the clients in treatment was, you know, remarkable. Right. Uh, you know, I come in like a rock guy, and I, and I just, you know, play the songs. There's no fanfare or nothing. And, I, and they were all coming up, wow, man, you know, that was my life, or this, that was so helpful. And, and then the other question I got often uh, asked after every group was, where could I get this music? And so eventually that led me to do the Clean Getaway record. I put that out. And then that response was overwhelmingly fabulous across the boards. Um, so I started working on, um, so I picked up my guitar after that record was over and I was trying to write just regular rock and roll songs, but I kept writing more recovery songs because I, I still do these recovery music groups. So I'm writing new material and I was like, oh shit, I got like 15 new songs. All right, let's do another one. Yeah. And that's where Sobering Times came from. And that's where we are now. And I didn't know what to expect when I read about it first from the promotional materials. I said, is it going to be pre-chi? Is it going to be a downer? No, it's pure rock and roll. You nailed it. Number one importance is that it's a rock and roll record. Right. right? Not a goofy kind of, not a self-help record. Right, right, right. It's a rock and roll record. It's, it's what you expect me to sound like. Um, second of all, um, no preachiness, period. Um, and it just it's just the lyrics. Uh, now I've learned how to do it. I've really got, I've really got it down now how to write these things. Because as I would do these treatment facility things, I would learn what to say in my songs and what not to say. Yeah. If you follow me. Yes. Like, I don't want to trigger people. Right. But I want to tell the truth of what it's like and how it can be if you change. So I, I really learned how to do that well, you know, over time, over two records. So, so yeah, it's a rock and roll record. It's not preachy. It's just really cool music, you know, very important that the, that I got great players on it. Um, Liberty uh, DeVito, I talked to him a couple of weeks ago. He's yeah, he's on Liberty. There. Yeah, yeah. Steve Holly played on most of it. Oh wow. Um, who played with Wings and and plays with Ian Hunter. Yeah. Um, and Rich Pagano, another drummer, played on the opening number, Quitting Time. Um, Great song. Thank you. And um, every track has hooks that'll just drag you across the room and stay in your head all day. That's what I like about it. Yay! <laughs> really. I'm trying to get that happening, and you know, I I, don't, I want to write songs that are memorable. Right. Right. And, and, it, and it turns out, I don't know when this is going to be aired, but um, I have uh, next week, second week in December, the coolest song in the world on Underground Garage, the second song together, the big, you know, glam song on there. Let the light in that you've been fighting.
the only one feeling what you're feeling But there's a whole lot of people out there hitting that same wall Crawling from the wreckage, been going back for seconds You run that game on yourself till you just can't run anymore That, that, and, and that's an, an interesting, you know, you made this point before, but because they're not really solo records, yeah, they are, but they're kind of concept records. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm all over the place. Like like you said, it's like that's kind of like a, like the third song I play on Mando guitar, you know? Yeah. Uh, and, and this one is a little bit like this. This is a little drunken sailor music. This is, you know, faces-y. Well, isn't that what we grew up on? Yeah, but you know, when you're doing a solo record, it, sometimes you always learn through your career. It's like, no, no, you got to pick a style and stick to it. For these, I just want to. I just let the, the the song tell me how it's supposed to sound. Yeah. yeah. And and then so when I got to together the big I call it the big ass glam song, you know that comes from my influences of listening to T Rex. You know the stuff I played with Jet. Sure. Um. Uh. Gary Glitter. You know because I grew up on that too. Uh, I said, well, who's going to play drums on this? So I called Tommy Price, who you know was in the Blackhearts with me, the second generation of the Blackhearts. Uh, so he played on that, and he played on my version of Merle Haggard's "The Bottle Let Me Down." I love Pour Me. That just tears oh, your heart out. Oh, I love out. that song, too. Just tears your heart out. Yeah, and how did I write that song? I'm sitting in my car, and I'm listening to Seriously Sinatra on XM Radio. And uh, one of, and I'm a big Sinatra fan, and, and um, One for My Baby, One for the Road came on. I said, I got to write one of those. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, you can and, see the whole scene in your head almost. Yeah, and I sat down, and I wrote my version of that kind of song. A guy sitting at a bar, you know. So I'm glad you like that one. I, I, I want to hear people, more people say they like that song. in this place a broken bar stool and a friendly face where I go to lay my troubles down the jukebox playing old familiar sounds bartender pour me another round 
Every night I come to drink I'm tired and I don't wanna think The bottom of a bottle's where I'm bound I got sorrows I come here to drown A bartender pour me another round Tonight I'm gonna raise a glass to those dreams I drank away I give life just a passing glance Another chance I'll get, I pray With each last call I fade to black Another lost night I won't get back Swear I'm gonna turn this life around Meanwhile, I think I'll throw just one more down A bartender pour me another round Tonight, I'm gonna raise a glass To those dreams I drank away I give life just a passing glance Another chance I'll get I pray I'm caught between the truth and not wanting to change I just know I can't go on this way To those dreams I drank away I give life just a passing glance Another chance I'll get, I pray I give life just a passing glance Another chance I'll get, I pray You could buy uh, the record. I'm having a holiday sale now. Uh, you just go to rickybird.com. I give this record away when I go to treatment facilities. You know, I bring a stack of them. The, uh, not this one, because no, I didn't go anywhere yet, but the Clean Getaway record. You know, I wound up giving away about 2,500 records uh, across the country when I go to these places, you know, yep. so, they, so the clients can bring, take it home with them. That's great. The music, you know, the message. Just do me one favor. Next time, print some vinyl. Uh, that's a good point. I know, but I'll tell you what, I looked into it, but I, I did a pre-order thing for this record, yeah. and I, I really only had um, a half a dozen or maybe a dozen people that asked for vinyl, and it's it's still pretty expensive. I know. But with that said, I so you can get it on rickybird.com, but I just signed a distribution deal uh, with Sony Orchard with um, BFE Entertainment through Fantastic. BFE. So come January, it'll be on Amazon and, you know, Spotify and iTunes and Apple Music and all the other usual suspects. And they may want to do vinyl. You know, if they want to do it, fabulous. And I get an autographed copy, right? Absolutely. Yeah, you know what I sign? When I sign CDs, I write, with words and music, we press on and pass it on. I like what you said at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Yeah, I can't tell you how much time I spent on that speech. 
it seemed like off the cuff. But that's the point of a good yeah, speech. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember the next day at breakfast, Tommy James said, damn, who wrote your speech? I said, dude, I wrote it. Oh, wow, because yeah. I grew up on Neil Simon. How's that? There you I go. I for a big bow. Just real quick, did you play with them that night? Because I didn't see that. Film. No, I did not. Can I ask why? Because well, Joan wanted to play with a new band. Yeah, but she called up the bass player, didn't she? I have no idea. I can't answer that question for her. I mean, it was fine. I got to give my speech, and I got to play, um, uh, you know, at that stage, that, that finale was just, like, ridiculous. Probably still beaming over that one, huh? That's... It wasn't It wasn't bad. Yeah. Oh, no, it wasn't. <laughs> I mean, I got to no. play I Want to Be Your Man and a little help from your friends with half the Beatles. Standing next to Joe Walsh. I mean, people forget also Stevie Wonder was standing up there playing harp. And yep, yep. Peter Patty, Wolf. Patty Smith, Peter Wolf, uh, yep. Gary Clark Jr. Yep. Um, uh, Billy Joe Armstrong. I mean, um, I can't even remember who else. I was kind of in my in the zone. I, I didn't, you know, I was I was just there. <laughs> it wasn't scary that night. It's scary when I look back at it now. Okay, uh, I think we're gonna we're gonna do another number for you now. And are we ready? I want to be your lover, baby. I want to be your man. I want to be your lover, baby. I want to be your man. Love you like no other, baby. Like no other can. Love you like no other, baby. Like no other can. I want to be your man. I want to be your man. I want to be your man.
2015 Rock and Roll Hall of Fame All-Star Jam featuring some searing guitar solos from Ricky Bird, who I want to thank for spending some time with us on the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast. His new CD, Sobering Times, is available on his website, www.rickybird.com, and you can check the show notes for more details. And Luke, it's been a blast going down memory lane with you. Any other anecdotes you remember from the store? Well, I had something interesting. So I ran into a couple... They told me that they met at my record store. I guess they met several times there and probably became b- big fans of the store. And they ended up uh, getting married. So they said to me that if they didn't shop at the store, they would have never got married. So that was kind of interesting. And then another time, I, I did a wedding for a couple that they, they both came to my store and they met at the store. And I actually DJed their wedding. Oh, that's awesome. So that was pretty interesting. No, you mentioned your son a couple of times. He's doing some amazing work now on behalf of the entertainment business in Rhode Island. Want to talk about that a little bit? Yes. In the last week, week and a half, he's probably been on TV about six times in the last, you know, in this small stretch of time there. Uh, he's been meeting with the governor. So I guess he's representing the entertainment industry. So as an individual, you know, they, they were all reaching out and not getting anywhere. So they got together and according to what he told me, uh, I guess he's up to 800 people now are in the group. I spoke to him this morning. 800 entertainers, venues, pretty much all the DJ and industry people have got together and, and they weren't being represented properly. You know, with this virus, you know, they, they've been asked to close down and, and the last nine months have been very difficult. So if you were planning a wedding at all this year, your date may have changed several times. Sure. You know, you, when you book a wedding, you know, especially the high-end weddings, you probably book a year in advance. You know, you put a, a deposit on it, you know. But with the virus this year, it's been very difficult. So it's been difficult for my son and difficult for, you know, all the brides and grooms, you know, all the Christmas parties, all the Halloween parties. I mean, the parties, uh, you know, the school events, you know, they're pretty much didn't happen or, or they, they were very changed with a smaller crowd. Sure. So anyway, they got together. He did a thing actually last week. He was at the state house out there. So him and in a group, there were 75 of them. They went out there and they kind of did a, a rally, you know, to get the ears open from the, uh, from the governor and so forth. And, and it worked. They reached out to him. As a matter of fact, uh, supposedly what I heard is there's been some extra money available. And, and I just watched it a little while ago. You know, she's trying to help the, uh, the industry all the industries that need money, quite a few of them laid themselves off because there's no work until March or April. Hopefully by then the vaccine will do something. Right. So that industry got hit pretty bad. But my son took over the DJ business, you know, probably in the late 90s, you know, and it took him a while to develop it. But I mean, he went over and beyond what I did and he made a business out of it, you know. And and there again, just like uh, music is my passion, it's his passion as well. I mean, he doesn't just do it for the money. He loves it. You know, he goes out there and he gives 100% of what he's got. And he's always buying new equipment and upgrading everything. Uh, he's got like eight DJs that work for him, even though right now everything's pretty much in limbo. Right. You know? Do you want to give a, a plug to your son's DJ company? Yeah. Uh, so my son's name is Luke Renchen, the same as mine. Uh, Funny how that worked out. 
Yeah, and I got a grandson, Luke Grenchen. So there'll be a third generation of us out there carrying sure the tradition on. Carrying the tradition on. So the name of my son's uh, DJ business is Luke Wrenchin Entertainment, and he's all over the web. You know, you could do a search and you could find him. Probably, I'd say, I just got about 30 years experience, and he's really marketable, and he's also got a great team. Uh, he's a uh, head of the, uh, they started an association for the entertainment business, so they got like two DJs, two photographers, two, uh, actually, unlimited amount of venues, you know, a lot of the Newport ones, and they all get together, and they refer each other, and if anybody's ever planning an event, you know, hopefully, maybe next year, definitely the year later, you know, give them a buzz, give them a shout out, and tell them uh, I mentioned it. Well, he's learned from the best, clearly. And I want to thank you once again, Luke Renchen, for joining us on the show today. Thank you, Don. I want to thank Ricky Bird for being on. And I hope everybody comes back next week for another edition of the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast. Why? Because we love rock and roll. Machine. I knew he must have been about 17 He was strong, playing my favorite song And I could tell it would be long that he was with me, yeah me And I could tell it would be long that he was with me, yeah me Singing at some old song, yeah, with me, singing. I-